and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Today, I'm really excited. I'm always excited, but every guest I have is amazing. I know you agree. But today, I am excited to welcome a woman who has changed her career from law to beauty with not one business, but two. Her name is Kimberly Smith, and we're going to hear about what precipitated her change in careers and how she is building this force for Black and Brown women in beauty. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Give us a brief bio. I call it the 30-second bio, but you know, there's no way anybody can give it to you in 30 seconds, and that's the beauty of it. So let's have your 30-second bio. Sure. We'll keep this brief. So I'm Kimberly, and I like to say that I am a attorney turned beautypreneur. I was a practicing attorney in the healthcare industry, and I had an aha moment a few years ago, and I completely made the switch and became a entrepreneur in the beauty business where I'm trying to redefine Black-owned beauty retail. Oh, that's great. Was the beauty industry a detour or a destination? I guess I would say detour. And I wonder if I fit into either of those because if I would have met you five years ago, beauty was not on my radar whatsoever. And thinking of wanting to go down the entrepreneurial path, it still would have been in legal, regulatory, some type of consulting. Beauty was never part of my plan. (laughs) Maybe it's a detour, but it's definitely a complete 360 from what I thought I would be doing. (laughs) That's interesting. So it wasn't even like a hobby or anything like that. It just, well, we're going to find out how it came to be as we discussed. So let's talk about your first job. And this could be your first job in law. This is your first job. And how did you go about getting it? What was it? Sure. So my first job was working in-house at a health system here in the DMV area, and it was out of law school. It was a legal position, and it was ultimately what I spent 10 years doing, building a career as a health law professional. And I got that job because I realized in law school that I had interest in the corporate side, the business side, and I didn't want to be, you know, your typical lawyer. So I wanted to find an alternative path and still use my legal degree, but also explore my interest in business and like corporate ethics. And that took me along the path of doing healthcare compliance and regulatory work. So let's talk about your aha moment and your transition from compliance, healthcare, attorney to beautypreneurship, as you call it. Tell me how that came to be. Yeah. So it definitely was, I would say, a moment that really kind of sparked, okay, I'm going to actually create a business. And it was shopping one day. I was going into my local Sephora and I was looking for a product, a contouring product, which... You know, if you're into makeup, you know that contouring is one of those color cosmetics that you're looking for it to be a certain tone so it can match or just be deeper than your overall complexion color. So I was looking for something that was deeper than my complexion color. And while shopping, 
at this particular store, at this location, this day, they did not have my shade. And I remember speaking with a sales associate and, and she suggested that I you know, walk around the store and find a different brand than what I came in for. And we looked around the entire store and we could not find one brand that had a shade that was deeper than my overall color. And not that this hadn't happened before, but I think in the summer of 2016, I was just in a space of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, like what was my passion going to be. And I came to the conclusion that whatever it is I did, I wanted it to be something that impacted Black people, period. <laughs> it was that simple. <laughs> I wanted to do something that really made an impact and really kept our dollar circulated longer than it usually does. So I wanted to do something where I was going to work with myself, other people in some kind of capacity, didn't know what it was. And so with that already in my mind, and then this experience happening, I walked out of the store and I thought, well, what if there's someone that is darker than me? I'm medium brown skin. We have black women that are fairer than me and much darker than me. And so if you're going into this store, not only are you not finding a contour product, but you're not even finding just a general foundation for your skin. And I thought, how is this possible living in the DMV? This is a very diverse area. How is it that we can go into a store and find products for us? And I thought, well, you know what? It would, if there was a destination where we could go and there were just nothing but options for us, what would that look like? And with that thought and with where I was in my mindset, I thought, okay, well, let me see if it exists. And I didn't see anything that existed. For sure, there was no brick and mortar store that existed. And there was not an online option that could rival, say, a Sephora or Alta. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try and do this myself. And that's how it happened. So for the audience, think about it. It's 2016. And you're having this problem. And Sephora, which is like the department store of makeup in the DMV. I'm just like, I have to reiterate, not having a contour shade for you is deplorable. It is hard to fathom. Although, you know, I've been in this beauty industry a very long time and I've been to many events where there was not a product for me. I would think by 2016, there will be something. And that's a matter of the buyers of that store and the way that Sephora's di distributing product, because they may have it at another store, making assumptions about who is shopping in the store as opposed to actually seeing who's in the store. Yeah. So all of that goes into it. And now I'm being deeper into this business, understand buying habits. I still don't understand it even now. 2016, I don't understand it. Now in 2020, you know, there's gains that are being made, but I still feel that why be in a position where we are waiting for someone or some company to address certain needs that we know exists when we have the means, we can try to find the means, but we have the capacity in some way to solve a problem that we know exists. Tell me how you went about building Majani and what were your challenges and what were the joys you encountered along the way when you were putting this together? The business formation 
was easier for me because I did have a legal background. And so working with healthcare companies, I was often working with smaller healthcare companies where if they were expanding, I was helping them form the business structure. So that part was easy. Um, I realized what type of structure I wanted, my name and doing all this kind of stuff. So structure wise, I did that. And I would tell you in the beginning, even though I had this idea, I still wasn't 110% sure that I wanted to pursue it full time. I thought I would start it. So I did all the things to start it. Thought about online, obviously, because that's a good entree into a business doing e-commerce because I could still work full time while I'm kind of figuring out what I want to do with this idea that I have. I didn't have a business plan. I had the idea. I had the formation. I thought, okay, well, let me put some ideas to paper. And I shared what the mission would be. I shared it with about 10 brands shared it. They were on board. And by January, the website went live. I think by January, I had 12 brands, actually. So 12 brands, I went live with the website. And from there, it was, okay, well, let me try to grow the business. And so I started doing different pop-ups in different cities. So I went to Atlanta, New York, Miami. I did some trade shows in LA just to see if this concept would actually work. And everywhere I went, it was an overwhelming response that we wanted to see something like this. And it really kind of snowballed from there. Like I said, I still think I'm risk averse. And people laugh at me when I say that. But I do think I'm very risk averse. And so even though I was doing all of this in the first year of the business, I was still thinking, okay, well, clearly I'm going to continue to work full time and I'll do this, you know, on the side. But I realized along the way that if I really wanted to do this in the way that was going to be impactful, it had to be a physical extension of this business. Because remember from my story, it came from being in the store and not having the service that matched to me as a customer what I had been and what I was willing to spend. Okay, before we get to the physical manifestation of this idea, let's talk a little bit about the brands that you had when you first launched. Who were among your first brands? Yes, I was very specific in that I wanted to only carry brands that were independently owned, that were black and brown owned. I knew that from the beginning. And that was something to me that was going to set the business apart because I felt that we're making a brand we're going to make sure that it's addressing our needs. And in the beginning, it was very cosmetic focused because that was kind of what it stemmed from. So I started with AJ Crimson, who I still carry today. I started with Pew Noir, again, who I still carry today. Vanessa Myrick's beauty, she came on about four months after I launched the e-commerce site. There was a brand, Reina Rebelled, which is a Mexican-owned brand. And then I had two UK brands uh, that were skincare brands that I started uh, that I don't no longer have, but that were part of the 12 I initially had. You physically went to where the customers were in a lot of times. That was your marketing strategy in terms of kind of raising awareness. What was your online strategy for raising awareness of the destination? As soon as you hit the website, the landing page, I wanted right away to capture your attention and to know that this was for you. Without even going all the way deep down to the bottom of the webpage, the imagery and the copy screamed, this is a place for us that will then prompt you to want to dig deeper. 
And I invested early on with a branding copywriting coach that helped me formulate how Marjani was going to speak and who the customers would be and what we wanted it to look like visually and then have the language match it. And I thought at the beginning that that was a necessary investment so that I could, from the beginning, let you understand that although this is a small business, we're not running as if we're a small business. Even if we only have 10 brands, we still want to operate as if we are running with the big boys online. So at least visually and you know verbally, that's how we're going to look. You set the standard for the brand from the start so you didn't have to change it. So you kind of created the vision and growing the brand around it. So you're a year into your business. And then you decide to do more. Tell me about that. You know, I knew that there had to be a physical extension to the store. And as much as even now that we kind of see retail has changed, retail is not dead. So I knew if I was going to take this seriously, then I wanted to do this. But we know that having a brick and mortar store is expensive. You know, the build out, the operational costs, all of that. I also did transition when I was doing all the brands and everything. I told you initially that I started focusing heavily on cosmetics. Well, eventually I started to um, expand into skincare so that we could have an expensive skincare collection. So Marjani morphed into being more about cosmetics, skincare, bath and body, and really honing in on those three categories. And I eliminated hair because hair already had its own thing, right? Its own movement on everything, but there was still so much to explore in the cosmetic and the skin category. So that's what I concentrated on. My best friend at the time, she's always wanted to have a physical location for naturalistas to be able to come communicate and shop for products. So everything that, you know, happening on YouTube and all of that, taking that and putting that into a physical location. And so we were talking and I was telling her like, you know, I really want to have a physical store and she wanted to have a physical store. So we thought, okay, well, maybe we can come together and start something, but not just come together to open a store, but try to come together to create some new kind of concept around beauty. So we created the Brown Beauty Co-op, which truly operates as a cooperative. It's an owner-operated cooperative business model where I still operate Marjani. The e-commerce now has a brick and mortar extension to it. My business partner, she operates her hair brand, which is Product Junkie. Overarching that is the co-op, which it's one part retail. It's another part retail incubation where we work with emerging brown beauty brands and helping them figure out the retail landscape. We also work to put on education and workshops. We serve as a community space where we allow other small businesses to come and host events pre-COVID, of course. And then we also are working on advocacy as well, because we realize that there's a lot of opportunity in the beauty industry when it comes to Black and brown women beyond just product development. But when it comes to retail, when it comes to buying and distribution, all of that stuff, there's so much to be done. And so we're using this co-op to really kind of dig into different areas of beauty. So, which is why I say that part of the business is more than retail, but we're able to have this space where we can have an actual showroom 
and customers can come in and buy. But meanwhile, we're doing a lot more than just the retail part of it. Which I think is phenomenal, particularly the branding incubation part of your business, because everybody has a beauty idea if you talk to them. But often they don't know how to get started. And if they get started, they often get started in the wrong way. So having a place to go to get inspiration and practical information to keep you from taking the wrong steps is really critical. Why did you think it was important to have that part of the business? And then the second question related to that is how do you choose the businesses that you work with? Sure. So You know, I started with the 12 brands initially. I'm now at about 44 brands. And some of them are brands that you're familiar with, people are familiar with, like AJ Crimson, Danessa, um, Black Girl Sunscreen. But there are a lot of brands that we carry that you may not be familiar with. And there are some brands that are local brands to DC that I believe are really special. Along the way, there are many brands that reach out and there might be something where it's good, but it may not be ready for retail just yet because there's just some components that are missing. And that could just be, maybe it's the website, maybe it's the packaging, maybe it's their overall brand story. You know, all of those things play a role into your product is not just about how effective it is, but people have to want to buy it. It really is first impression is everything. And so we were coming into contact with a lot of brands that were like that. And we know, and I know myself, like, you know, I'm still bootstrapping, but I still know that even as I'm learning, you know, with my legal background, the things I'm learning in this business, there's still things that I can teach someone else. And we're in a position as we're meeting different people that are different capacities and their businesses. And as we're meeting other beauty retail owners, all of that, we're meeting so many resources. How are those resources then being trickled down to the brands that are one year old, six months old, or just one inter but don't know how? There's a gap there. And so we felt that it was important for us to use our platform and to use every resources that we have, pass that on down. And that's where it came from. So now when we see beauty brands that may be six months old, but we can see where they're going, we're going to figure out what resources they need and how we can connect them either with other resources or how we personally can help them be ready and have the information that they need to build their brands on a solid foundation so that they can then grow. We have a number of brands that started with us as their only retailer that then went on to larger national retailers. So we know that We have an eye for picking brands that are poised to really do great things in this industry. But we know like Black women on business for sure are under-resourced, underfunded. We're constantly trying to figure out which rooms to be in so that we can network and all this. But while we're doing that, we can network amongst each other and really, you know, benefit from our experiences and resources that all of us are gaining. And so that's really where that came from. And I think that that is such an invaluable part of your business. And it does set you apart from just being a retail store, not even just being a retail store, because being a retail store is important. And being a place where Black and brown women can go and actually try things on, but also to be in community. Because I think the community aspect of it, not just that you're in the community, but you are a source of community, can be also virtual. So COVID can't stop that once you create community. 
Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. But let's talk about how COVID has changed your business model, if that is an accurate way <laughs> to describe it. Woo! <laughs> COVID is just that nasty little thing. So I started with e-commerce. So that's the one thing. And one thing in this whole process in the past four years is having to admit what I don't know and understand there's so much I don't know. And along the way, just figure it out and figure out what I don't know, find the resources to help me if I get stuck in something. So I definitely, in the beginning, focused on e-commerce, knew I was going to have the physical location. So when the physical location opens, which it'll be two years in December, that we opened the doors of the co-op. And so... My focus was 110%. Okay, no, I will give the website 5%. So I'll say 95% focus on the physical location, 5% on the website. So I was not optimizing the website once the store opens. So with COVID and the store, it was closed for six months. So we closed in March. We didn't reopen until I think that was September. So at first I was stuck. I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? I had the website, but I was not doing all the things that needed to be done with the website. I kind of stopped. So everything that I'd done before, of course, I had the email. I had certain things that were going, but you have to constantly work on it. And I wasn't, to be honest with you. And so COVID forced me to go back to originally why and where I started, which was e-commerce. And so I'm still in this, like three months in, because I had a real human moment, a month where I was kind of, woe is me? Like, what am I going to do? We were just kind of troubleshooting. So we were just doing all these different things virtually. We were doing virtual happy hours. We were doing virtual product consultations, which we're still doing because that's actually a great idea. <laughs> so we're still doing that. So I was doing a lot of things, but still from the store perspective, though, how can I do all these things for the store, but still not really focusing on all the elements of the e-commerce. And so that has been the transition over the past six months is focusing on all of the elements that make an e-commerce site strong from, you know, the SEO, the paid advertising, all of those things, you know, all the digital marketing, all of the content that I need to do, really going back to the drawing board and like, okay, I started to build something with this website. I really need to build out all the components. So it really is, no matter if you're in store or online, you're still getting that experience that I always want everyone to have that I was diverting to the physical store only. And so that has been the transition and the dip in revenue obviously was, I saw a, a 75% in revenue dip initially with COVID. And then now starting to actually see with the online sales that getting back up to a point where I was last year. And that's a feat to be had because even with the store now open, we're only open three days a week now. So most of the sales now are coming from the e-commerce site. And that I'm attributing to getting back to the basics of the e-commerce and realizing that even if customers aren't coming in store, people are still shopping. They still need the items that we're selling. 
And so realizing that the e-commerce and the physical location, those are two different business segments and you have to treat them separately. Right. People are shopping and probably needed the products that you offer more. So knowing that you have that model and promoting it more just to your existing customers that come to the physical location just becomes a strategy that you continually do. The other thing is that e-commerce makes you national. You're attracting a whole nother set of customers. And I would say international too, because we had international customers actually prior to opening the store. But unfortunately, I neglected them, I have to say, because I was not, you know, doing everything that I could with the e-commerce site. But now going back to that, we again see that, you know, we were, you know, just in the store yesterday, just getting out a lot of orders and the customers are national. They're across this country. We have customers in Canada. We have customers in Sweden. Yeah, Norway even. <laughs> so the brown beauty that I foresaw is not just a DMV thing. It is definitely something that all over the world, we have a story to tell when it comes to beauty. And we want to see a certain thing and we deserve it from, you know, where we spend our money. Yeah. There have been a lot of promises made by the beauty industry in response to George Floyd protests um, regarding systemic racism. What do you want to see and what is the beauty industry missing about serving Black and brown women? I think what we're missing is across the board representation everywhere. So it's not just good enough to say, oh, we're going to dedicate 15% or 25% of our shelf space to Black and Brown-owned brands and having products where you can come shop. That's great. But what does it look like behind the scenes? Like, What do your teams look like internally? From managerial teams all the way up to your boards, what do they look like? Because at every level, there are decisions being made that affect the business. And those decisions trickle down into the customer experience and customers viewing your businesses, whether they're in store, whether they're looking through your social media and seeing or not seeing certain images. There needs to be representation along that. And we're still talking about this in 2020 because we know through those campaigns that happened where people were, you know, the pull up or shut up, we started to see what the makeup was of these companies. And in 2020, there were companies that had 0% Black representation, customers that had 10% Black representation. People were proud that, hey, I have 15% and they were including everything in that, right? Smart as we are, we were peeling through those numbers and really seeing what those numbers actually meant. And knowing and still that there may not be a Black woman on your board, or there may not be a Black woman on your executive team. And then you have some companies, well, we're we're really small, but we have this number of, you know, Black women or brown people in there. That's just not enough. If you want our business, and I always like to say, listen, no one has to do anything that they don't want to do. However, if you want our business, if you want our attention, if you want to be a part of the movement and the cause, and you want to be genuine about it, then there are some actions that you have to take that for some, it's not going to be easy. People go where they're comfortable. And the inside of these boardrooms, they look like what people feel comfortable. They look like the rooms and people feel comfortable in. And for real change to happen, some people are going to have to be uncomfortable. 
So I'm looking for more change that affects things long term. It's great to have these programs where you're accepting 10 brands into this. That's all fine and good. But actually, we're looking for more sustainable um, investments into these businesses. How many businesses do we know that are Black women owned that are still bootstrapping, that are actually showing profit, but are still unable to get investors? But if we look to our white counterparts, some of them are getting investments just with an idea. But yet we have to show years and years of profit. <laughs> so I do like the movement that happens. And we all have ideas. So if they want real ideas, there's a lot of us that can help them, right? <laughs> but I do think that there's a lot of opportunity here across the board for businesses. And even for us too, I think for us, not even have to wait to be invited for us to do our own thing and to help one another. And that's really my dream is for us to collaborate in ways which we can start to have more buying power, more investing power, more capital resources by us collaborating together to start taking from this market share that we're outspending it. We're supporting the market share eight and nine times the general market. And there's so much in what you said. I couldn't agree with you more, especially because when we think about, let's say a Sephora takes is committing to this 15%. That means those brands have to have the resources to produce the product, to put it on the shelf. Like, are they going to help them do that? And then they have to learn about returns and all the other things, the hidden things that Sephora can make. I just had an interview with somebody um, last week. They worked at Sephora and they said, you know, learning that Sephora business model is this make or break for a business. So you're bringing Black-owned business in there, but if they have no idea how to maneuver that, that's not helpful. And that's one of the things that we teach in our workshops. And that's talking about like, you know, pricing, like a lot of brands don't even price well, they don't price for retail. So they price for direct to consumer. And then thinking about retail, you have no margin. But if you think about wanting to get into the big box retailers or the like, the national retailers, it costs to get in there like your marketing costs, you have to have a dedicated marketing budget <laughs> that you have to spend. If you have a display, for instance, if you're lucky enough to have a display off the shelf, you have something else. You probably have to invest in that. You have to purchase that. Like that's money. There are net terms. Are you prepared to not receive money three, six months plus out from when you ship your order? Can your business sustain that? Do you have that much cash sitting that you can run your operation knowing that you're not going to get paid right away? And these are things that a lot of emerging brands don't know. And it's not their fault that they don't know. I mean, how did I find out about it? I found out by being in the business and I'm on both sides, but learning this. And so a lot of brands that come to us don't know this information. And this is information that everyone should have. And it shouldn't cost you to have this type of information. The other thing that I've noticed, the other trend, and you know, many people have spoken about it, is offering mentorship and not money. <laughs> no one asked you that. Yes. I was reading somewhere where someone said something about that. Like, okay, listen, we are over-mentored and under-resourced. I can't steal that. I can't take it. So someone else said it, but I love it. And I like to use it because it's so true. Over-mentored and under-resourced. Listen, 
We do not need another savior. Or thank you're going to save us. We need actual resources, like whether it's marketing, like we need marketing. That's probably the number one thing that small businesses need. We probably need tech. We probably need equipment. I mean, the things that we need are actual things that we can put our hands on that can be deposited into our account. We don't need to have mentorship and sit on calls and telling us certain things where you're giving us more on our to-do list that we can't possibly even do because we don't have the resources to finish the first 10 things that are on our list. And that's, again, moving beyond everything with the George Floyd and a lot of programs that came out of that. There are so many mentorship programs that came out of that, that again, like what can you offer that's really going to propel business forward? What are you going to offer that takes a business from year one, year two, that crucial moment when a lot of business fail in their first few years that they can't get to that year five and really start to scale and really truly build legacy brands. Like that's where we need to try to move into where we're building legacy brands and whether we want to sell those brands at some point or if, if we want to continue to build them out. But we're in that crucial point where without resources, we can't get there. When I hear about the programs and see the good intentions, sometimes I question, you know, is this just performative? Like, so come April, May, when we start looking at what really was accomplished versus what we all talked about and whether or not brands are in a better position, consumers are in a better position, you know, overall. Then we can talk because until then, I'm still kind of side-eyeing a little bit. I mean, I understand that there are some good intentions, but as you said, this is a long game. This is a long game and I'm not going to be bamboozled into buying the first thing you throw out. I'm going to look, you know, I need to see that five-year plan too. Oh, yes. (laughs) Thinking about all of this, what are the unsung skills you need to be a beauty entrepreneur? I think there's a lot of intangible skills that you need and you have to be humble enough to know that you don't know and to be able to admit that you don't know. It's okay. Because if you can't admit that you don't know something, then you never positioning yourself to find the answers, whether they're through other people, whether they're through resources of your own research and reading if you can't admit that, okay, I don't know something, then that's a problem. And even if you're starting a business where you actually have experience, like unlike myself, there's still so much you don't know because running a business versus having an expertise in something versus working for someone, even at a high level, is just different. So I definitely think that's the intangible skill you need to have is just knowing that you don't know. Another, you can't be afraid to fail too, because along the way, it's not just about failing big. It's about the daily failures that you have and not letting those failures keep you from moving forward. And I think one of the things you asked me initially was the challenges when I began I feel like the beginning, it wasn't so much the challenges because the barrier was low because I was starting online and it wasn't so resource heavy at the beginning. The difficult part really has been in actually this past two years of realizing that this is a whole business, that I'm running a whole business, that I'm trying to grow and feeling like these failures are going to prevent me from taking this business to the next level. 
And so I've had to become comfortable with failing, but knowing that ultimately these small failures aren't going to keep me from succeeding, but these failures are here and they happen. <laughs> and being able to, if you can't hire people, but there's still ways in which you can leverage other people to get help and resources that you need. So being smart about that. So if you have something that you can possibly offer someone, you can find ways to barter things. You might not be in a position where you can hire someone to do social media or you can hire someone you know, to help get your orders out or whatever the case is. Finding ways to get people to actually help you because you can do everything by yourself. There's no way you can run a successful business being a party of one. So you have to be scrappy in that way. So that's a skill, scrappy. It's not a sexy word, but you got to be scrappy and figure out ways to continue to move forward, continue to do things on whatever budget you have. And you can't look like you're on that budget. That's a word right there. You can't look like you're on the budget, though. I never wanted my business to be viewed as, oh, that's a cute little side hustle. That's a cute. No, 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 no. This is an actual business. This is a business that is Sephora-like. It is Alta-like. It's a different model because I'm very honed in on my demographic and providing a service that no matter how diverse they try to be, they can never do what I am doing. And perception is everything. So I always wanted to be perceived as I'm going to operate as a big business, even though I am a small business. And so everything needs to be handled that way from customer service to our shipping, to our website presence, to the store, how the store actually looks, how it's designed. All of that needs to look like we're big, even though we're small. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. What was the first beauty product you've ever tried? Lip gloss. Because I remember back in the day, the brown lip liner and the clear lip gloss. (laughs) It was a look. And so I went to Catholic school. So it's not much, you know, you could do, but there were different ways in which you tried to, you know, have individuality. And so putting some lip gloss on and and that brown liner, that was it. (laughs) What's the last beauty product you tried? Now, you're probably trying products all the time now with your business trying all the things. Um, the last product I actually tried is interesting. Like, So I try a lot of skincare products. Skincare is actually our number one selling category, obviously, uh, especially during COVID. And I have a whole routine. So I love all the things, but I'm also a bit of a minimalist. So when it comes to the different lip masks, eye masks, I personally have not been one of those that are just like adamant about using it. However, um, there's a new brand that I'm testing out and they have this really cool eye mask that is full of hyaluronic acid and other good vitamins that just help you with the puffy eyes and any like dark circles. And I don't have dark circles yet, but I'm trying to be proactive. So I tried that. And yeah, I think I'm going to incorporate that possibly into my regimen. So that's something new that I hadn't tried before. If you had to choose between skincare or lipstick, 
Oh, skincare for sure. Uh, again, what COVID has taught me is I love makeup and I love to do my face. I have not done it so much now with COVID. And so you just realize how important your skin is. And we did this even in the store because we also have a makeup bar at the store where we just stress the importance of your skincare because it just makes your makeup look that much better. So I'm all about skincare, skincare, skincare. Great. Who was your Black beauty icon when you were growing up? And who deserves that status now? Oh, this was a tough one. I couldn't think of one growing up. I will say one thing that I, growing up, like my grandmother, she had just the best skin and she was very simple with it. But what I loved about it, she had just simple, just beautiful black skin, but she will always put a red lip on. She always had a bright lip. So it was interesting to me. So when I hear women that are so scared of like bright lips and like, red is too sassy or something like that. I don't know. Cause my grandmother always had her red lip and then she would just pop a little bit on her cheeks and just, you know, a little rouge is what she called it. And I love that. And my grandmother also, she had a very short cut and it was blonde. And so she was just doing it. Okay. So you know what, now that we say that, I would say that she was probably like my first inspiration because from her, I just saw there's just no limits to like what we can do, where, like we're true individuals as Black women and how we choose to present ourselves to the world. Like we're just so diverse in that. And I love it. Oh, I love that too. My grandmother had the blue rinse, you know, the gray hair with the blue rinse. Fly as all get out. Fly as all get out. Like, so sometimes we think of beauty icons as somebody on TV and that can be a case or a movie star or whatever. But a lot of times, especially when we end up in this business, there are those early kind of influences that implant those kind of ideas in you that come out later. Who would you say, you know, kind of like you like this style now? Let's kind of. Oh, you know who I love? I love Tracy Ellis Ross. I just absolutely adore her. She's definitely like the girlfriend in my head. I just feel that if we were to meet, she would just love me. And we would just have some wine and we would just chat. And I'm like, yes, girl. Like, listen, I've been loving you forever. We just need to meet so we can connect. But I just love her on so many levels. Like, she just owns so much of who she is, you know, beauty wise and just personal. Like she's doing her thing with no rules. It's not no rules about being married or having kids or what society says that she should be doing right now. She just, she's living the way she wants to and she just owns herself and owns where she is, owns her age, owns everything without the limitations that society tries to put on women, black women, Black women over 40, all of those things. So I love that. And that's, to me, something to aspire to. Just being free and just being you. Yeah, that's a great one. Who gave you the best career advice and what was it? I would say, honestly, for this one, it would be my mom. Because for parents, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Okay, I ended up being a lawyer. So I'm coming to my mom and I'm like, hey, I want to stop doing this. <laughs> And I want to open a store. I want to open a business. And for her, just the belief that she had in what I was going to do, knowing that I would put as much effort and intent that I put on becoming a lawyer and practicing and doing all those things that I would do the same for my business. She, to me, has been the inspiration in that, Kim, don't give up. 
you saw a need in the market, you're addressing it. Don't give up. When I have those failures that I tell you about, where I have those times where I just don't believe she's telling me, don't give up. Your time is coming and you're on the path. Like you're on the path that you're supposed to be on and it's okay. And that to me has been the greatest advice because I can take that with no matter what it is I'm doing. I trust myself to know that I'm being smart about what I'm doing. I'm not just, you know, just being so crazy and starting things and doing things, but having a plan and using what got me up to this point in the first place and continue just to kind of, you know, trust internally, like what I know to be true and using my brain. Yeah, I think that's great advice for anybody who's thinking about wanting to step out. Because you're an example of somebody who's risk adverse. Like you measured the risk and thought they were worth it. Like it's not like you just jumped out and did something crazy. You still planned. But what I think is great is that it offers people insight, even if you're to do it afraid, to take the chance because your mother's saying, you know, there's a path for everyone. There is. And doing some of these things afraid will put you on your path. It will. A healthy amount of fear is okay. If you are just out here doing something, you're not scary at all, something's wrong. But a healthy amount of fear is okay. It's just where do you direct that energy and what do you do with it? Do you allow that energy to stifle you, to keep you in one place without moving? Or does that fear propel you to keep moving and to do the work? And that's the bottom line. Keep moving and do the work. I think that is where we're going to stop because everybody can take that to the bank. I want to thank you so much for being with me today, Kim. And I'm going to shout out Ananda Leek for connecting us because she's always thinking of me and has me in mind when she meets people. You know, she always thinks of who would be good connecting. So thank you, Sister Ananda. I do thank her. And honestly, and this is one of the reasons why that store is so amazing because she came into the store just randomly off the street, didn't know that we existed, came in, came back again a week or two later with two friends, introduced me to you, you know, and It's just something so beautiful about that. And while she was in the store, she ended up networking with two other customers. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. Give us the address of Brown Beauty Co-op and the website for Marjani. I mean, we want to know, we want to support. So let's have our listeners hear that. Okay. So in DC, we are located in DuPont Circle. The address is 1365 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest, Suite 100. And you can also find me online at marjanibeauty.com. And you can shop online or you can come visit us in store on our limited business hours, Thursday through Sunday, Thursday through Saturday, 12 to 6 and Sundays, 12 to 4. And you're still doing virtual product? Yes, we're still doing um, virtual product consultations. Yeah, so those are being scheduled through the website. For those of you that are local, we do have a beauty bar where we now offer facials and makeup services. And we also have online skincare consultation. So we were about education first. So I want you to understand products, find products that are suited for you. You know how they work. However way we can reach you, we're going to reach you. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here. 